Would we be eternally safer if we were all given a second chance to repent after we died? The text is Hebrews chapter 9, 27, and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die, to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, and so you see the, rep, you see the repetition there, right? Once, once. Having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. We haven't seen the last of Jesus. Not, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are, who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's just pray quick. We repent of all the things that distract our hearts even momentarily and keep us from eagerly awaiting your return. This is a great text. Your word is precious beyond all telling. Be with us as we study it in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. We all know we die, and we all know Jesus died. But our text seems to add needless words in describing these events. The writer doesn't just say, we die. He labors the point that we only die once. Seems obvious. And the writer doesn't just tell us, Jesus died. He says, Jesus only died once. He repeats that. So in spite of the fact that it it seems unnecessary to do so, we should at least investigate the possibility that our text must have some reason for this approach. In fact, I think the wording of these two verses, it kind of gives us a clue how to study them. Like verse 27 introduces the need for verse 28. We, we all face judgment after we die, 27. And verse 28 answers to that issue. All of that is made clear by the way the writer launches his thoughts with these words, and just as, in verse 27. He's trying to make it clear that he's not just giving us a list of ideas, but he's building a case. He's, He's making an argument in which these two events, two events in the first verse, 27, our death and our judgment, are somehow answered to and provided for by two events in verse 28, Christ's death and his second coming. So so the approach of the text is, just as these things happened in 27, so these other things happened to address them. I think that's obvious. They're, They're related as problem and answer. Need in verse 27, solution in 28. Certain things are appointed to mankind. They're unavoidable. And they're hugely problematic. And these things are the reason Christ came 
and died the first time, and they're the reason he's going to come again the second time. So that's, that's made even more pronounced by the careful and deliberate use of the time words. Appointed for man to die once, 27. And not coincidentally, Christ has been offered once, verse 28. And then, just as after our death, another event follows, judgment. So after Christ's one death, another event follows follows, he will appear a second time, 28, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So all of that is the freight we want to try and unpack in this text. Point number one, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This simple observation is is, uh, troubling for a lot of reflective people. There are few things more difficult to accept than the idea that such a short time of trial and probation on earth should lead to such a lengthy time of judgment and reckoning. When we're placed on earth, however long we live, for just a few short years, and yet we're told the consequences of our actions in those short years can extend for all eternity. And it just seems disproportionate somehow. And for some, it leads to increased personal indulgence to sin, just on the assumption that God couldn't possibly bring eternal damnation to anyone for the fleeting moments of indiscretion in this brief earthly life. That just doesn't seem... Doesn't seem possible. It seems to many to be a disproportionate kind of justice. And yet our text, it it seems pretty pointed. It seems pretty clear if words mean anything at all. And if God's decree is given any weight, it's just stated. 27. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And there are many references from our Lord's lips that this judgment is an eternal judgment. I won't take time to look them all up. Our text says that this judgment comes immediately after death. So, so there's no probationary period extending after this life. We, we only die once. There's no reincarnation. Shirley MacLaine is wrong. You don't go round and round. It's appointed to die how many times? We die once, death doesn't usher in another chance at earthly life or some time for improvement later on in purgatory. Following this life, before anything else, judgment. But what if there were? What if there was another chance? And I'm just sure... I'm sure many of us are inclined to think if, if we only had just one more period of probation, we, we would enter the second time around a lot more carefully. What if instead of dying once, the text said, it's appointed that we die twice? I mean, surely we would all give God more careful attention if we had a second go around. If we saw what lay beyond death, 
We saw what was beyond the grave. Then we had another chance to repent. It just seems a no-brainer that we would all do better the next time. If we were just given a second period on this earth, carrying all the experience of our first earthly life, heaven would end up more densely populated, I'm, I'm just sure. The throng would swell around the throne of God. And there's something else that makes this second chance proposal sound even a little bit more compelling. I mean, surely if God were truly loving and gracious, indeed, as the Bible says, not wanting any to perish, then why would his love not manifest with this more generous option? Why would it not be appointed to mankind to die twice? I mean, on the surface, it just seems like such a good question for a loving God. After all, even those who hadn't yet died once, those living, we, we would have the benefit, wouldn't we? We'd have the testimony, the benefit of those who had already tasted death the first time, seen the reality of the eternal world. They would come back for their second chance, and they would tell all of us of the need for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Surely that would turn the most careless person into a deeper follower of Christ, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Fortunately, we don't have to guess. Jesus addresses this situation. Here's what he said. You know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. This is a person suffering after death. Send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham, Abraham said, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let them hear them. They got Bibles. They got churches. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, that's what we're talking about, right? They'll repent. And, and he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, and then, read these words out loud that I'm underlining, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. Note well, if someone comes back from the dead, they won't listen. Even if someone they knew, this is a brother, this is a family member. They probably attended this guy's funeral. Even if that person returned with a message of warning of judgment to come, not even the verified testimony of a family member would soften the sinful heart. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem possible. So no. We know it isn't true that those who hadn't yet died would be turned from their sin by those who were on their second time around. The Bible says so. But that doesn't settle it, not if you're thinking with me. I mean, surely those who had already died once and were on their second chance, surely at least they, 
At least they would be more devoted to Christ. That too is unlikely. It's unlikely because of the effect of sin on the person committing it. Because, you see, sin not only brings guilt, just as surely as it brings guilt, it brings moral stubbornness. It brings spiritual entropy. It removes the capacity for repentance the longer it's persisted in. This is something every person needs to really reconsider. Paul talked about it in, in his letter to the Romans. For although they, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see this? They became, they became futile in their thinking. They're not logical anymore. And their foolish hearts were, look at that, darkened. 32, though they know, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They, they join that team. Three steps, cry out for notice. Their hearts are darkened, 21. They know God's decree, 32. And they encourage deeper sin and disobedience in themselves and in others, 32. So this is more than merely being tempted and enticed into sin. This is, this is out-and-out rebellion. This is a commitment to deeper sin with a full knowledge of all its consequences. This is, this is the breaking of God's moral compass and spitting in his face. But there's more. We all know from our one life that the chances of repentance diminish the longer it's justified, the longer we pretend, the longer we sink into ourselves in denial. When do any of us find sin easier to forsake? When it's very first committed or after years of repeated indulgence? And if someone lived his whole life or her whole life knowing that it was appointed to die twice then who would willingly forsake sin the first time around? Why would they? You know what that means. People would sin more boldly. They would become more and more futile in their thinking. They would be stronger deniers of truth than ever. Sin's hold would deepen beyond words as we all procrastinated planning for that second chance after death. You see, if a second chance after death is to have even the appearance of an advantage, then we would also have to have memory of the first life because that's what, that's what would make repentance possible. That's what is alleged to cause the carefulness the second time around. But that consciousness of the first life, it would also be, it would also be our undoing. It, it means the second season of probation would be entered not only with a fallen nature, with which we all entered the first, but also with a conscience that's already hardened through the bondage of an entire life of sinful practice. 
desires, habits, they would emerge fully formed against God. So however hard it was to forsake sin in the first life, it would be infinitely more difficult in the second. So what we're beholding in our text is not the unreasonableness of God in decreeing that we all die once and then comes judgment. This is God's wisdom. This is God's compassion. The effects of sin are put on a shorter leash. We're told in advance that we must live this life with devotion and earnestness. In advance, we're lovingly told it's appointed once to die, and after that comes judgment. The the preciousness of each single day encourages us to invest each one with eternal significance. That's the verse 27. Point number two, and we're almost done. Just as we die only once, our text says Christ was offered only once to bear the sins of many. That's in verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the first part of the sequence we've already studied, that awful fact of death, it's made so final. We only do it once. There's no escape from this appointment. You may miss a lot of appointments. You won't miss that one. There's no escaping it. So serious is sin, so relentless is its grip, that it drags all of us equally down to the grave. Gee, Pastor Don, it's it's Good Friday. Why are you being such a downer? And And it's precisely to shift our attention from our one death's finality and certainty, precisely to shift our attention from that, that the apostle uses the very same term to describe the death of Christ on our behalf in verse 28. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So he need not die again. He need not die again to bring me forgiveness. He need not die again for payment of those sins that drag us all down to the grave. And those sins are the very root and power of death. And there's something else really precious here. If Christ died to bring an end to sin's reign, and if in his death he brought not only forgiveness for my guilt, but actually conquered the power of death, and if he offered that sacrifice only once, then there's nothing else to be done, nothing else to be added to save us all, not just from our sin, but from death and the grave. Once. Once finished. And so you look deeply at the Father's heart, our Creator's heart, more full of loving concern than anyone could ever imagine. That heart, that heart that would have done absolutely anything, that heart that would have made the sacrifice a thousand times if it had been needed, that heart could not think of one more thing to do. Not one more thing to do to deliver Don Horbin from sin and death. He couldn't think of a thing else to do once. 
That's why we call it Good Friday. That's the whole argument in this great chapter of Hebrews. If you were jumping around a little more than we are in the text, you'd see stuff like this. Jesus, our high priest, is not like the earthly priests that Israel knew all about. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, the animal's blood. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, and here he's doing the same thing, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, I've got to hurry. One more point, number three. People who understand this are eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come back to earth a second time. You see it in the last part of verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. With all my heart, with all my heart, I believe the church, I don't mean this church, I mean the church, is, is right on the edge of letting slip away what the New Testament calls the blessed hope. That the triumphant second coming of Jesus Christ back to earth. I fear this. The, the majority, the majority of Christian funerals that I witness center more and more just on the blessing of our dying and going to be with Jesus than Jesus coming back here. True enough and precious through and through is the teaching that those who die go to be with Jesus, which is far better, Paul says, absent from the body, it's present with the Lord. It's all true. That's not what I'm waiting for, and that's not what our text says we're to be eagerly waiting for. Our text says we're waiting for Jesus to appear a second time. That's different. Pastor Don, why does this matter? I want to I wrap up trying to frame this theologically. The difference between believing that the good news is I die and I go to be with Jesus. The difference between that and we are all eagerly awaiting the second coming of our Lord back to earth. Here's why the second is far better. My dying and going to be with Jesus, if I died before I finished this message, carry me out here, I'm with Jesus right away. I believe that. But my dying and going to be with Jesus, as wonderful as that is, it does nothing to rid this world of sin and rebellion. My dying and going to be with Jesus does nothing to bring this whole Christ-rejecting world to its knees and acknowledging my Jesus as Lord and Savior. My dying and going to be with Jesus does nothing to undo the effects of the fall and the rule of Satan and war and hatred and disease and the bondage of a thousand false religions. And I long for all those things, and they're not going to happen until Jesus comes back. It's far better than my dying and going to be with Jesus. It changes everything when he comes back. What I'm longing for, what I'm eagerly waiting for, is God's finished work of new creation. 
It was paid for on Good Friday. And I'm waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. That's what I'm waiting for. And I'm longing for a life in a resurrected, glorious body like the one the risen Jesus Christ had. Second coming of Christ used to be talked about a lot more than it is today. I want this church to help change that. The second coming of Jesus is not the same as the Christian's departure at death. It's way better than that. I can still remember years ago getting emails from pastors and from churches and some people even in this church, all abuzz. Remember that movie, Heaven is for Real? And I was just stunned that so many churches felt they had something more hopeful suddenly than the New Testament. Couldn't believe it. I'm tired of hearing of all of these near-dead and post-death people with their claims with the help of a team of script writers and producers. Usually there's no mention of judgment and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Tell me if you want, but please don't expect me to get excited and jump up and down about it. I'm eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come back. Jesus didn't see things on a hospital operating table. My Jesus conquered the grave. He arose in a new creation body. He is the pinpoint, the one tiny spot where the new creation is already in existence, and the rest is all going to come. It's all going to come. I have nothing better to tell you than that. And Jesus died once because it's all accomplished, and he's coming back again, and there is nothing in the whole world that can stop it. And if you're eagerly awaiting his return, say amen.